0: Okay, so pharmacies are going to like me for telling you this, but modern drug delivery is flawed. Find out why in this episode of Goggles Off as I interview professor and department chair in biomedical engineering at the University of Texas at Austin, Dr. Tyrone Porter. Dr. Porter's lab focuses on creating advanced drug delivery platforms to push the bounds of modern therapeutics. Dr. Porter also touches on his unique experience as a minority in the science and engineering field and his pathway to professorship. We also cut loose and talk about Dr. Porter's hobbies, including a love of music, the ability to craft cocktails, and brew craft beer. All that and more in this episode of Goggles Off. Guys, I had so much fun interviewing Professor Porter in this episode. He's so charismatic and down to earth and obviously extremely brilliant and all this came together for a very relaxed and fun conversation between him and I. So I hope y'all enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoyed recording it. And hey, audio only listener, if you're listening to the show via audio only, what are you doing? There's a whole video portion of the show now on YouTube. I spend hours and hours and hours recording video, editing video, and making all these custom visuals to help facilitate y'all's understanding of the science. So please check us out on YouTube so you can have the full experience. And yeah, I hope you guys love this show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, everybody, welcome to this episode of Goggles Off. Welcome everybody to another episode of Goggles Off, the show where I get outside of the lab to talk to scientists about their lives and their research. Uh, Today, I'm immensely proud to be joined by special guest, Professor Tyrone Porter. Dr. Porter, how are you doing today? Doing real well, and thanks for having me. Awesome, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, So I wanted to unpack your educational background just a little bit, because this is sort of how I start every episode. So you received your bachelor's in electrical engineering from Prairie View A&M University. And then did a PhD in bioengineering at the University of Washington in Seattle before doing a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Cincinnati and moving to Boston University where you served as an assistant professor in both mechanical and biomedical engineering. And you are now at the University of Texas at Austin where you are a professor in biomedical engineering. That Um, is correct. Nice, that's always one of the hard ones for me because you guys have so many accomplishments and accolades that I got to go through the list. Um, so to sort of start, I like to unpack my guest's research. So can you tell me what sort of research you do uh, and how you got involved in this field?
1: Yeah, so my research is pretty, is relatively diverse. Um, my, my, my laboratory works at the intersection between material science, uh, nanotechnology, and biomedical ultrasound. Um, And more recently, we started to get into um, cell biology and tissue engineering. So a lot of the work through the the, the span or course of my career has really been, I've been really interested in designing or developing um, nanoparticles um, that are are stimuli responsive. And they're designed to respond to changes in pressure and changes in temperature, really uh, um, basically heat, application of heat. Um, Knowing that ultrasound can do both. Ultrasound really is just a a, a propagating sound wave, just at really high frequencies, higher than what humans can hear. That's really all it is. Um, But it's a pressure wave. And so you can get these changes in pressure locally um, in whatever media that is propagating through. Um, But also when it's absorbed by tissue, it will generate heat. And so if we are able to develop or create little, little capsules that are smaller than cells that will contain drugs or other things that we want to deliver to an area of disease, like cancer, for example, and that's a big area, a big focal point in my, my laboratory, um, then you could possibly trigger release if it's responsive to uh, elevated or becomes leakier at higher temperatures then you could hit it with ultrasound, a focused ultrasound beam, which you can focus like a ma- basically like a magnifying glass. You can focus light to a very small spot. You can do the same thing with ultrasound. You just need a focused ultrasound transducer. Um, there are also some acoustic lenses that um, operate or have uh, performed very similarly to uh, magnifying glasses. And so you could heat just a very small region in the body. Um, and then trigger release of the drug at that location, at that spot. So you could increase um, the concentration or the dose that's been delivered locally or to a particular location in the body, and then um, minimize exposure to other parts of the body, whether it's your heart or your brain or your liver, and you can avoid maybe some toxic effects that might be really harmful um, to the patient. So that, that's that, that's uh, kind of gives a description of the heat response. The other is the pressure response. We do make um, um, ultrasound contrast agents are just micro bubbles. And so they're just gas, just bubbles that you would make as a kid um, when you're blowing bubbles, but just on a smaller scale. Um, so, you know, I, I play with our kids on making bubbles, but just soapy Liquids that you can buy from the store, and you make these really large, very stable bubbles. Um, but of course, you can't have these large bubbles in your bloodstream. So, ultrasound contrast agents are just that you scale down the size, you make them smaller, very, very small. So, the bubbles that um, are used for contrast enhanced ultrasound are on the uh, size scale of cells. So, you're talking microns in size, and so they can flow through the blood and they can. But you don't inject too much and so i know uh, one of the questions i oftentimes get is how can you inject bubbles into the bloodstream isn't that dangerous isn't that harmful it really is the amount of bubbles that we inject it's a it's a very very small amount relative to the volume of blood so we're probably talking on the order of a thousand times um less than the volume of the blood circulating in our body actually even less than that it's about a maybe on the order of close to hundreds of thousand times less in terms of volume so it gets diluted out really fast and because and it also gets cleared out of the blood really, really quickly as well. But bubbles are really responsive to changes in pressure. And so they will oscillate. And when they oscillate, they can, much like a guitar string. When you pluck a guitar string or you hit a piano key and it hits a string inside the piano, it resonates or emits radiates a sound wave. It's the same thing with these really small bubbles. Because they are so small, the frequency is proportional to the size. So it's actually inversely related. So a smaller bubble will radiate a really high frequency sound wave. Once again, it's that a frequency is higher than what humans can hear. But you take an ultrasound probe, and it can detect or receive the high frequency sound wave. And you can now use that to, as part of like the image construction. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was used for diagnostic um, applications, contrast-enhanced ultrasound is used and really being able to to improve upon reflections you get from blood. So you can actually look at blood. Um, You can estimate blood circulation based on the flow velocities for the bubbles in the blood. And you can also use it for some therapeutic applications. You can actually enhance tissue absorption with these bubbles. So you can more effectively and in a shorter time period Um, uh, thermally ablate or really destroy uh, with heat um, solid tumors. So Mm. those are the the areas. And then lastly is the tissue engineering that's more of a new area, but we're interested in trying to create really small models of sections of the brain, in particular the blood-brain barrier, along with um, some of the immune cells. We're really interested in the question of if uh, pathogens get across, um, how can they get across the blood-brain barrier because it's such effective interface we're regulating gets in and out of the uh, of the brain so how could like viruses get across into the brain and if they do the local immune cells the immune cells in the brain how do they respond how quickly do they respond are they able to adapt are they able to effectively protect us um from these viruses that get into the brain which is relevant right now because of covid Um, there there's some evidence that patients the small is relative to all the patients that have um, contracted COVID. But there's evidence that if COVID and the virus gets into the brain, it, it has you know, some pretty severe um, ill effects. Um, and so there's questions of how does this virus actually even just gain access into the brain? So we're making these models in order to begin to, to research and study that.
0: Very cool. Yeah, there's a lot of things I sort of want to unpack there. So I've seen these images of these uh, contrast enhanced micro bubbles that, that make more exquisite ultrasound images. And it really is like night and day. Like you put these micro bubbles in there and now you can see all the vasculature in the patient, and it can really give you a good idea of what they look like. So those are really, really cool. Um, and then I sort of want to break down like how crazy the things you are doing are for the audience, because like the nanoscale, right. Engineering on the nanoscale is sort of something you you do and talk about in a lackadaisical manner, but it's actually nuts. So like <laughs> You gave you gave this analogy in a lecture at Boston University, I think, and it was this idea that okay, the distance from Earth to the Sun, right? Let's take that as one unit, and then if we were to go down, you know, nano scale of that would be you know divided by a billion, then we're on the length scale of my foot, right? And so that's sort of what we're doing from a meter, right? A meter is you know however big a meter is down to a nanometer, or nanometers in scale, and that's a, a billion times smaller. And so what sort of challenges? are present when you're engineering at that length scale?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so the big one is just being able to see what you are uh, synthesizing or creating. It's, um, it's a huge challenge to confirm and verify. So if I want to make a particle that is, you know, a, um, a million times excuse me, a thousand times smaller than a cell, which is probably on the order of close to a million times smaller than a hair follicle. How do you actually see that, right? So that's that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, There there are microscopes that allow you to do that, electron uh, microscopes in particular, and then there's also atomic force microscopy. You can get on that scale in order to be able to visualize and see things. Um, and maybe even interrogate the material properties. Um, the other one is when you're on that length scale, the physics that governs the performance or governs the displacements of, of particles on that scale is different. And so just rethinking how we you know, really assess the movement of particles on that scale the interaction between those particles and cells and biological interfaces is also different. The time scale is also different. Um, so those are two of the big ones. Um, but being able to verify and see that we are, have successfully made what we had set out to make, right? is really challenging. And then the last one I will I will mention is if we are loading and packaging drugs, therapeutics into our particles that we're making. You know, making those kinds of measurements, you need a lot of material oftentimes in order to um, be able to detect what's actually in your particles. Um, and, and once again, so that you have um, some sense of uh, efficiency or the level of success that you've been able to make what you want to make. So those are the the three things that first come to mind. But the visualization is a huge one. It really
0: is. Okay. Okay. Um, and another thing I sort of wanted to unpack there is you mentioned this ability to use ultrasound to heat up these drug packaged particles in, you know, a specific area of the body with like millimeter precision or like a magnifying glass precision. Uh, and this avoids sort of uh, off target side effects that the drug would otherwise cause because, you know, systemic delivery, like injecting a drug inside of a patient, and then now the drug is on all over the patient, it's going to cause a whole bunch of issues. And we see this in chemotherapy. Um, and so this is something really interesting about nanomedicine is this idea that you can turn the drug on only in the areas you want to turn it on to selectively treat only the area you want to treat. And that's, I mean, what, what, what could that do for patients?
1: Oh, it could be, it can be a game changer. Um, because as you mentioned, the systemic toxicities um, and anyone who has a family member, a relative or a friend who has been diagnosed with uh, cancer and has been treated with chemotherapy. I mean, chemotherapy really is just poison. Um, it is the one of the standards of care, standards of treatment for cancer. Um, it is used to treat most cancers if not, um, a, I would probably have to give a lot of thought to what type of cancer does not receive or cancer patient does not receive chemotherapy, even if they have surgery to try to cut out as much of the tumor, the cancer as possible. Most of the patients are still getting treated with chemotherapy. So, you know, and as you you mentioned, if you chemotherapy, um, traditionally it's just injected directly into the bloodstream, and so it just circulates throughout the entire body. this is actually be to be honest is really important for patients that have advanced or metastatic cancer because that is cancer that has now spread to other parts of the body. So if you have lung cancer, it originates in the lung, but it can spread to the liver, it can spread to the brain, um, and so how do you how do you try to get to those you know, those different regions in the body in order to kill off the cancer as best you can. So chemotherapy, certainly it makes sense. Um, you wanna treat these cells with poison. They're designed to preferentially treat rapidly dividing cells. So I wanna, I wanna definitely stress that point for the listeners. This is not poison that kills any, it, it will kill just about any cell you gain access to. But they preferentially will kill rapidly dividing cells that's why that you you see people who are receiving chemo hair falls out because your hair for anybody who's ever had a haircut within like literally two days you're like i thought i just had a haircut because your hair grows back just so quickly so any rapidly dividing cells you hear about people having nausea and vomiting because your stomach lining, the cells in the line in your in your GI tract turn over more quickly than other cells within the body. So, um, you know, trying to minimize and 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 reduce the exposure um, is something that researchers and scholars have been pursuing for um, a number of decades now. Um, they've had some success. Um, there are some nano-based, you know, drugs where, you, as you mentioned earlier. You can turn on. You have some control. Like you basically have on-demand release of these drugs, and and you want to really just release them spatially. You just want to release them only in the tumors. Um, so there's been some success, but it can be a game changer because you could, in theory, you could kill off the tumor, and then you know you know you have patients that don't lose hair like they do currently, don't have you know these vomiting scenes, um, um, and they don't have crises. You- you can have pain in your joints. Um, There's some drugs that are actually can be toxic to the heart. Um, and the liver is basically your, your sort of clearance organ or one of the primary clearance organs. So many of the things that's in your body, um, this in your bloodstream, this waste and whatnot that's not supposed to be there, the liver does a really good job of clearing it out and it processes it. So it gets into your liver and the cells in the liver processes it, tries to break it down and then release just as waste. But there can be toxic effects in the liver. And then lastly, you hear a lot of also um, patients who are getting chemotherapy, they're more vulnerable or susceptible to viruses, just like a cold, a common cold or a flu. And it's because the poison can, because you're, your blood cells are actually, um, you're you're replacing your blood cells every few days. I think your red blood cells, might be more like closer to a week, but you're replacing your blood cells on a regular basis. Um, And so they're, they're, and the the poison is in the bloodstream. So they are more susceptible because they're exposed to these poisons as soon as they're injected, like literally immediately. So you hear people that um, white blood cell count goes down dramatically. And the white blood cells are the first defender for any of these uh, viruses or bacteria that gets into your bloodstream. So you hear people, this, they're just much more vulnerable um, to you know, bacterial infections um, and also um, viral infections. And so they have to be kept
0: in the hospital just to, to make sure that
1: they don't succumb to some other disease other than the cancer.
0: Okay. So it sounds like these nanoparticles and this nanomedicine combined with the ability to turn on the nanoparticles with stimulation from ultrasound uh, has the ability to potentially alleviate a lot of these off-site issues that, that chemotherapy and other drug treatments cause. So that's really, really cool. Um, I'm curious, you know, when did you decide you wanted to be an engineer? When did that fascination start? And when did you, because you made the switch from electrical engineering to biomedical engineering, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, so my fascination with science is really from science fiction, partly for, for two things. One is science fiction films. I'm a big science fiction nut, um, Star Wars, Star Trek, um, you know, uh, I, I can even take it back even further than that. Um, well, not, I wouldn't say further than that because Star Wars first came out in like 1977 when I, was, when I was a kid. So I've always been fascinated with science fiction. Um, And then secondly was computers. So when I was really, I would say, reaching puberty as a kid, so the early to mid-80s, computers in the home really burst on the scene. So if you look back at the history, you or your listeners, you know, um, personal computers, desktop computers, that was not a thing pre-19, late 1970s, maybe very, very early 1980s. And of course, Apple and the Macintosh from Steve Jobs. Uh, the Macintosh, in particular, really burst on the scene in the early like in the 84, 85 ish. Um, but video games uh, simultaneously burst on the scene. So Atari, um, what was the other? The Commodore, the Commodore system. Before you had these with the mouses and the joystick, uh, you had to go to an arcade in order to play those kinds of games. Um, but number two, you might have these fantasy games where you had to actually have to type in. It was all text-based. It was not graphic, it was not visual at all. It was just words on the screen. It was like reading a book and having some input on what wouldn't happen next within the book, much like Minecraft of today. But it was it was not visual at all. You just had to type in what the what the the, the action was going to be. Um so the video games really came on the scene when i was a kid and i was just fascinated by the graphics i was fascinated by the hardware i was fascinated by how small things were um because the computers before then were mainframes some in some cases these things would fill up a whole room uh they do still today but now they're supercomputers so the technology is still really impressive but that really captured my attention and my imagination um so originally i was I, I i had aspirations to be a hardware or software engineer in the computer industry um and you know apple has really become you know really an innovative company and i've always much like everyone else you know people had um ipads iphones ipods uh apple macintosh computers imacs um i you know before i got into biomedical engineering i actually Had an interest and I aspired to actually work for the company like Apple. Um, I probably would be much richer than I am now financially. (laughs) But I've been, in terms of like, um, I'm richer, I would say, from, you know, recognizing that the things that I work on could have such a positive impact on people's quality of life. Um, And, you know, being able to possibly um, help cure a person or help prolong a person's life. That has been very enriching. Um, And so I've enjoyed that. So how did I get into make that switch? I did, I did major in electrical engineering and I started out my undergrad degree, you know, certain that that was the pathway I was going to take was getting into into computers. And then I had a couple of professors that really did a, a tremendous job relating Some of the very sort of didactic sort of math heavy boring things that we were getting in the classroom to real life real world applications and so one of the um one of the applications one of the examples was using lasers to trap cells and particles Uh, it's known as optical tweezers Um, i think it's much more common now than it was when I was an undergrad. I think it was just becoming a thing. A lot more people were using light in order to trap cells on a dish and move them around or trap particles on a dish and move them around. And just the idea of what I perceive was like this invisible force, it once again, it was almost nostalgic. It tapped back into, you know, watching Star Trek with James T. Kirk and taking out his laser and just firing the laser or the repulsor rays from like Iron Man's suit. I mean, it was it was these light-based forces that you could physically then manipulate things, right? And induce motion. Um so that was just um it just it was it it was fascinating to me. Um and I had an interest in you know, biology, but I didn't, I didn't think I would be a very good doctor because I didn't think I would be able to deal with loss regularly, potentially regularly seeing loss and trying to, uh, the emotion that comes with that. I didn't, I didn't think that I would be able to handle that very well. So I never saw being a doctor in my future, but learning that engineers, to be honest, had always had an impact on the medical field in healthcare. Originally, I didn't really perceive that, but when you think about it, um, any of the devices that you know connected to the patient that measure pulse and temperature—they're all sensors. It's all engineering. Um, so when I, once I recognized that you know you could be an engineer, and that you could actually make devices, make technologies, um, you know potentially make or be involved in new methods or techniques. That could be helpful um, for improving healthcare, then I was all in. Awesome. I was all in. So I was probably my freshman or it was freshman or sophomore year in undergrad. But my university didn't have a biomedical engineering department or degree plan or program for undergrads. So I knew then that if I wanted to pursue that as a career, I was gonna have to go to graduate school. So I forewent, you know, the millions in stock options I could have got from
0: Apple to go to graduate school. I see I see. I mean you talk about it in previous interviews but you you're I think, you know, correct or at least you know it's your opinion but it's this idea that it's very fulfilling to know that your work, you know, as an engineer which is is one is just awesome because you get to sort of play around with like your intellect but also it can potentially really save people's lives and then also make their life more comfortable and I think, you know, we're all, you know, I'm I'm getting older myself, everybody's getting old and so as we get older we sort of see people who you know, succumb to these diseases and like get unhealthy. And so that can be a powerful motivator for us. And yeah, it's it's, it's a really fulfilling career path, I would say, just like from my own experience. Um, Absolutely. With so much success, though, you know, you have this very successful career, you're now a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, you know, super impressive. Uh, as a scientist like me, it can kind of be daunting. It's like, oh, they never fail. They're just perfect. They like everything <laughs> they do is great. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, could you speak to that? You know, do you encounter failure in your day-to-day life? You know, have you ever failed as a scientist?
1: Oh, I, I'm a firm believer, and I tell my students this, that if you don't have failure, you're not trying hard enough um, in the laboratory. So um, I'm a risk taker. I've always been a risk taker. Um, I've, you know, just to give an example, beyond science, I, I've gone diving, but some people will say, you're actually going to like, go like 60 feet below the surface of the water. I mean, what happens if something goes wrong and you might even drown? It's like, yeah, that's, that, that's always the risk. That's the possibility. But think about what you can actually see and experience. Um, I've gone skydiving. Um, and that was one of the most amazing things I've ever done in my life, jumping out of the airplane. I screamed probably half of the way down from like 10,000 feet. But once you calm yourself and just, once again, just look around at the beauty of the world and just seeing the world from a completely different perspective, that maybe you only get to see looking out the window of an airplane, like a jet, that's at like 30,000 feet. Um, that also was something that we'll never forget. So I've just always been a risk taker. And if you take risks, there's always the chance for failure. There's always a the chance for failure. So. Me personally, um, there's a couple of stories I could share, but the one that, and, and you never really know how the failure will present itself. So sometimes it's failure that you don't even recognize until you have a chance to stop, take a moment, think about what you're looking at, look at, you know, really sort of process and analyze your observations and then figure out what to do next. So one example I actually gave to my, my students recently was, was running experiments um, as a graduate student, was testing out this new idea with a, a high-powered focused ultrasound transducer that could do some of the things that we were talking about earlier. You can you can, um, you can, can heat up tissue by tens of degrees, right? And so you can get to a point where you can um, thermally, just by heat, you can kill tissue, you can, you can kill a cancer, you can kill a solid tumor. And the transducer I was using, um, We weren't getting, I wasn't getting the same results, the same, I wasn't making the same observations. The performance was just different in terms of the experiment, the measurements I was making was just way off. And I just felt like maybe I just wasn't driving the transducer hard enough, or maybe I wasn't, I was adding in some other agents and stuff like this cocktail and the results were just, I was just not having any success at all. And it was frustrating um i talked to my advisor we weren't really sure what was going on and i finally recalibrated the transducer and calibration just means that i can take the transducer i will um send a signal with a known electrical uh, amount of electrical power and that should give me once i've calibrated this, the transducer that should give me a certain amount of basically a sound energy or sound pressure level and I had calibrated the transducer months prior, maybe even a year prior, and everything was going well. And then all of a sudden, my results just didn't make any sense. And they weren't even nowhere near or even close to being comparable to the results I had. And so I recalibrated the transducer and discovered it was working at like 20% efficiency compared to what I had measured a year prior. And I had basically lost something like a month. No, at least three months worth of work i mean i was also being stubborn because i know i had made these measurements with the same system with these same sort of electrical power levels driving the transducer in the past so i'm like i should get the same results i haven't really changed anything within the system it's just that the system was not performing and behaving the same way it just had basically sort of i have broken explained to my advisor and you know we moved on but that was failure that I had to really sort of deal with. You know, it was a moment of failure and that wasn't the only moment of failure that I had as a graduate student, but that's the one that, you know, I remember vividly because it wasn't only just failure. I was failing multiple times over a span of a couple of months, which is like, I just wasted part of my time as a graduate student, but I learned at the same time from the failure. I learned that it's actually a good thing to recalibrate your transducer every so often, right? That the systems and, you know, even though it looks like a very robust hardy piece of equipment, it can break. And not just because, you know, you dropped it somewhere or not because you spill water on it, it's just because you operate it to the extent and the limits of this operation parameters. And that's basically what we were doing. Right, we were just driving it so hard and 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 for so long that it just ultimately just kind of failed on its own. So recognizing that these systems are not invulnerable, they're not um, so hardy that they can't fail was actually a very very important lesson for me that I've actually been able to carry with me and share it with my students whenever they have to deal with these kinds of failures.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing I say on the show often is this idea that as a scientist, I'm sort of a professional failure. And it's because it can be really difficult. Like you said, like in a span of just a few months failing over and over and over again, it can get kind of debilitating. But I think what makes a good scientist and, you know, you know, somebody who, you know, makes it is this idea that, hey, like failure is going to happen whenever you're at the forefront of, you know, a field or whenever you're trying to advance like humans understanding of something. And if you're able to get through that failure and not take it like personally and just sort of keep trying and learn from the failure then that like makes a huge difference and is really what what it's all about right like graduate school and things like that so yeah failure I feel like can teach us a lot and is actually sort of an important part of our career even though it's very uncomfortable a lot of the time
1: yeah I was going to say failure is very uncomfortable it's very frustrating but it is part of life you know I, I can't think of anybody who just has success all of the time and we present You know our successes, but those who are part of that process know the failures that we had to endure. And you know, you had Elizabeth Oscar Fernandez on um, a earlier podcast um, that I had a chance to listen to, and she referred to it as setbacks. And I think that's all. That's another. That's a great way to sort of re to think about it, just in a different, just a different lens or different perspective. There's setbacks. You ultimately are going to Achieve success, but along the way to that success, you're enduring setbacks. And that can happen maybe one setback, it could be multiple setbacks, it could be a big or a small setback. But you're going to have to endure these things because, as you mentioned, we're, we're at the forefront of knowledge, we're at the forefront of technology. And so, anytime you're trying to break through and create something new or understand something, Um, answer unanswered, you know, basically try to answer uh, a question that has plagued the discipline for decades in some cases,
0: you're going to have to endure
1: setbacks in order to get there.
0: Yeah. So that actually was a good transition point. So I want to actually move on to more of your personal life and journey. Um, And I was curious, Goggles Off was largely started because I'm a first generation college student and My dad was a construction worker and all my uncles were construction workers. And I had never really even considered myself to fit in in any academic setting. I just didn't think that it was in the cards for me to be a scientist. And I really just did not see myself doing anything but construction. Um, And I'm curious if you faced anything similar to that, just given the low representation of black men or just black people in general in the STEM fields. Yeah, I didn't,
1: I didn't really, I would say Fully appreciated until um, probably undergraduate undergraduate years. I had some internships. Because um, I'm from Detroit originally. You had mentioned um, where I went to undergrad and grad school to so my academic pathway. But I'm from Detroit, Michigan originally. And Detroit is, and still to this day, is majority Black city. It's probably on the order of 70, 75% Black. Um, And you've got people who are African-American or black that are in positions like leadership positions, influential positions, whether it's mayor or school superintendent or police chief, fire chief, um, some of the other politicians, senators for the state. So I had always seen basically black excellence growing up. And then I went to undergrad, which was an HBCU. And so I was fortunate to have that experience as well because I have black teachers, I have black um, students, classmates, and then I got to University of Washington. And before University of Washington, I spent a summer in a couple of cities in the Midwest and you know where there were few, there a few employees who were black. And so that really was my introduction. That was my true introduction to, there's just a lack of representation in many of these STEM professions. I get to University of Washington and from an academic perspective, it was the first time, to be honest, that I was really the only Black student in many of the classes that I took. I was the only Black student in the classroom. The research group that I was a member of, I was the only only person of color in the group, uh, if I recall correctly. And that was over like a six-year period. So that was that. that really was, um, what's the best way to say it? That, that I think that was something that most people had experienced before their age of you know, 24, 25 years old. It was new to me. And so it was a shock to the system. You hear about culture shock. It was a real, real culture shock for me to actually have to go through that. And then the um, acoustics, the field of acoustics, um, biomedical ultrasound in particular, There's very low representation. There might be nurses that know how to operate ultrasound machines and maybe some doctors, but representation is really lacking in acoustics. And so I'm one of few when I go to meetings um, that's giving presentations or, you know, sharing sessions. Um, So I, I see it now and I've learn how to navigate through the space and how to be comfortable in my own skin and comfortable with who I am. Um, it takes time to get there. Um, but you know, I've come to this, this place where I do feel comfortable. I do feel confident. I've got a lot of supporters um, that, uh, you know, through the years have been very supportive, really helpful um, with helping me um, reach my
0: full potential and and so it's been it's been a journey yeah one thing um you mentioned just being comfortable in your own skin one thing that you mentioned in a lecture you have on on youtube was this idea that you know you walk into a room of people who are part of the acoustical society and you know these are your colleagues these are your peers but you still had this in the back of your mind like oh will they accept me like will they you know see me for just the color of my skin and like Put me down to one dimension, or will they realize that like I'm actually a very esteemed scholar and like a, a like you know a thinker and that I totally belong here
1: yeah no i that, that certainly happened like it's when when I first got to the University of Washington, I was really concerned and worried that people would reduce me down to you know one trait, and there was at that point in time when I started at the University of Washington, there actually was a, a, a petition, there was a bill that was added to uh, that was voted upon my um, first year. And that was to basically eradicate uh, affirmative action programs in state funded, um, either state funded universities um, and also state funded um, state funded organizations organizations um, that could hire people. So making and, and hiring decisions or making admission decisions, uh, race could not be a factor, right? So there was a petition that was started right when I first arrived. And there was a lot, there were a lot of, there was a lot of debates. There were a lot of speaking engagements where people came and talked about this, that, you know, uh, these affirmative action programs, um, people are only selected based on the color of their skin, their racial identity, identity, without even asking the question and looking at the transcripts, talking with these people, uh, some of the, the the applicants, you know, getting a good sense of what their background is, what their stories are, have they had any success, what's their what's their academic preparation, what's their professional preparation. They will communicate that they are. Inferior, and there's no reason why they should be hired over someone who to be honest is part of the of the majority that's you know that's from the majority white society there's no reason other than the color of their skin and the racial identity they're inferior they have always been inferior, and so you know when I hear that kind of rhetoric it's it's hurtful um if you hear it enough, you start to ask yourself, is that something that people are always thinking about me? Is that the only thing that they see? And what will I have to do to prove myself? And should I have to constantly prove myself? That is, that I don't think about it as much as I used to, um, but it's something that used to always cross my mind. When I was a younger, when I was a young, when I was a student and a younger faculty member,
0: I mean that's not something I've ever had to consider in my life. I've never had to think like, oh, am I in this position, you know, because of my merit or because of something else? And that just sounds ridiculously challenging and just like sort of insidious that it could creep into like your thoughts and make you sort of second guess yourself but i think it's pretty clear like from you know taking your class and like here on the podcast and all the crazy things that you've done like you're obviously like brilliant and so i I don't know i think it's silly for anybody to question you or your like you know belongingness um and it's it's
1: part of the system you know and that's something that maybe hopefully your, your listeners of the podcast can maybe appreciate it's just part of the system it's the system was sort of designed and structured that way You know, once America was like officially formally founded after the Constitution was signed into law to govern the country, it's always been baked into the system. You know, that's not saying that people inherently are bad or racist. The system was designed to support one demographic more than others. And in order to maintain that, those who are in positions of power then have to basically provide this narrative that there is a caste system and that it's a racially designed race-based caste system that has to be created in order for people to say well yeah they are inferior and so therefore they can be treated a certain way or they should be excluded from certain opportunities and feel and be okay with that it's it's almost like going to war you you have to make someone the enemy you have to create this narrative that they are less than and once that gets into the system it's hard to get that out
0: no definitely definitely and that sort of leads me into my next question it's this idea that throughout your career you've really been like involved in like many leadership positions for diversity equity and inclusion in the sciences like groups that support this um and i'm curious like you know you've sort of already touched on it but why is this so important to you um and why has it been sort of a staple of your career despite it being sort of a lot of invisible work that you don't necessarily get a lot of credit for?
1: Well, I do it because I'm trying to combat the system. I'm trying to transform the system. Um, and so the success is I continue to have success. And and that is actually um, is communicated. It's just is is is, is sort of shared with the broader community. Um, I do think that begins to change some hearts and minds. I don't think it will change all hearts and minds. Um, And as I assume these positions, these leadership positions, it puts me at the table for either changing policy, making adjustments and modifications to the system. I am really, really interested in how can we change or transform the institution? How can we transform or revise the system so that the system is more equitable, so that the system is more inclusive, I feel like that's something that Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg, RBG, I feel like that was something that she really embodied, right? That was a major motivation for her. She was passionate about doing it from the seat of the Supreme Court, all right, uh, for the United States. Um, The same thing with Thurgood Marshall. He was able to sit at the seat where he can't make decisions that alter and transform the system. I am nowhere near. I think as influential as those two giants in American history are, but I can try to do that at least within biomedical engineering. I could try to do that within bioengineering. I can try to do that within acoustics. So if I'm creating programs, I'm creating initiatives, I'm spearheading initiatives, I'm rallying people around these initiatives, bringing more people to the programs and to the you know, basically the whole process of being involved in trying to modify, alter the system. I think ultimately we, we can't have success. The last thing I may, I'll say about it is, even though I had positive role models, my father, uh, some of my teachers, professors, Benjamin Carson, before he became a politician, was a huge role model for me, not only because he is a doctor, probably one of the most accomplished neurosurgeons, pediatric neurosurgeons in history. He's also from Detroit, which I learned when I was probably I was in high school, he came and spoke at my church. Uh, when I was growing up, and just to know that he came from Detroit, and to hear his story and the struggles that he went through was really impactful, really influential. So, but I had very few role models who were black in biomedical engineering in bioengineering. So trying to put a new face on bioengineering that maybe people are not aware that this could be um, a discipline where you see other people that look like you. It could be a discipline that also pays attention to healthcare inequities and tries to develop new technology or new instruments and methods to address sickle cell anemia, for example, which really only affects black people in America Maybe it doesn't get the funding or the attention because it's considered maybe a black disease or HIV was first considered just to be only a gay a gay disease. right? Monkeypox, you hear this rhetoric about, or at least the numbers say it's predominantly monkeypox, those who contract it are gay. And so then you get these narratives that this must be once again, just like HIV must be another just gay disease. Then it doesn't get the attention, the proper attention, the proper resources right, um, and it gets um, demonized, right, the disease gets demonized and, and it makes it easier for it to actually spread, right, it it doesn't, it's a disservice to be able to begin to label things and characterize these things in, in these kinds of manners and with this rhetoric. It's a total disservice to that, the, the public in general. So my taking on these roles, I think, is not only beneficial for me and for other Young black scholars, but I think it's also beneficial for society as a whole, and that's a big statement. It's a it's a big aspiration. But as I mentioned earlier, I like to think big, so I like to take risks. I like to you know have an impact on just you know on so many different things. So it's a, it's a passion of mine because of those reasons.
0: Well, I'd say you're certainly having an impact and definitely opening opening the door for other people of color. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, you touch on in a lot of your lectures, the importance of having a role model in your life, somebody that you can look up to and sort of relate to. And you just kind of said that, you know, you had several uh, excellent black role models in your life, but sort of not too many in biomedical engineering, or maybe none in biomedical engineering. Uh, and so I'm curious, like, it sounds a lot to me like you're trying to be that role model for others moving forward.
1: No, absolutely. Um, and, and so I, I have always I have always made an effort to get out to um, public schools, um, high schools and middle schools, and and sometimes down to to, to even to elementary schools. Um, It can be, I find it could be a little, it may be a little more challenging to try to explain what I do to elementary school kids. Um, But certainly I try to get out to middle schools and and high schools and and talk to the students um, and, and basically present once again the face that This is a discipline, this is a career choice that you can pursue. Um, I try to host students in the laboratory. Um, I've always tried to have a very diverse lab. And so my lab actually, we still need to create the website. um, And I'm, it's a lot of ways, I, I, I think I'm just dragging my feet on this a little bit, but The laboratory is now the name for it is Diverse Engineering Applications Lab. And it's not just because of the diversity in the science that we pursue and the ideas that we pursue, but also the composition of the members, the identities that are present within the laboratory. I wanted to be very clear that it's an inclusive place, it's a welcoming place. And so whether you have physical disabilities, whether you are a first-gen student, whether you are queer or bisexual, or whether you're a person of color or a native Alaskan or native Hawaiian. I've had people in my lab who are from all walks of life, black, Latina, Latino, queer, native Hawaiian, Asian, have all been a member of my group. And I think it makes it, It it not only enriches the science, but also I believe that it enriches that personal growth while you're in the group. I think you we are constantly growing as people and to think that you get to a certain age and then you peak right as a human being I think we're constantly evolving and maturing just based on our real life experiences, and so the more. Diverse, the experiences that you come into contact with on a daily basis, not these drive by, not these walk by sort of chance meetings, but consistently getting these new experiences from the people that you're working with on a daily basis, that you're learning with on a daily basis. You're growing as a person, as a human being. It just opens a lot, opens the eyes. Uh, we don't always have to agree. I'm not saying that everyone in the group has the same value system and that we agree, have the same opinions, but that's part of the beauty of it, is the differences in the opinions, the differences in the past experiences, the differences in the value systems is something that you get exposed to and it just makes you in my being just more well-rounded, more uh, just a better person overall.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I can't wait for the website to come up, by the way, because I was sort of trying to find your website and I couldn't find it. So yeah, like with love, it's not would up love yet. Maybe, maybe you can throw this on there though. You know, maybe you could have something for people to digitally interact with. So, you, you know, yeah, one piece I'm, now.
1: I'm actually looking to have um, one part of it that is more of like a,
0: almost like a social
1: aspect uh, or um, information aspect. I just haven't figured out what the title would be. And so like podcasts and connecting with these kinds of podcasts is something that I would like provide a
0: access to for people that are just visiting the website. Awesome, yeah, I mean, I think it would be a good way for, you know, when I was applying to UT Austin, I was sort of looking at different websites and I was like, oh man, I wish I could just watch a YouTube video about this or like listen to a podcast about this because I'm just sort of a lot to go through for every single lab. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of a daunting task to like have this dream to like aspire to be this engineer. And then, you know, you don't see a lot of people who look like you in that profession. That must be just an incredibly challenging thing to like pursue. And I'm curious how it feels, you know, I've I've like met your children and they're sort of in that age of just like, they like to play video games, they like to play, you know, they're just like in that, that rough and tough stage. But what does it mean to you to like, be able to serve the, as an example for your kids as to what a scientist or an engineer looks like?
1: Oh, it, mean, it means the world to me. Um, I would say my dad, Played or served that role when I was growing up, um, because there's this misconception that blacks can't are are are, are cannot um, that's where I'm looking for here are are, are not good mathematicians, and, and that math is is sort of they're they're not prepared to succeed at math. And my dad had. I think a master's degree in mathematics and so you know having conversations and getting tutelage from him uh, for some of the math courses that i went through in middle school and high school whether it was algebra or trigonometry and he was able to demonstrate and show to me that you could be black and really be excited about math. I was really excited about math. I think part of that was due to my dad and also be really good at math. And it wasn't just my dad, his brother, my uncle uh, who also worked at a university in Ohio, he was really, really accomplished in mathematics. And so those were positive influences just kind of reinforced that I could be successful and I could actually be really, really good at mathematics. And you need to be really need to be good at mathematics to really get into engineering and to really get into physics and really enjoy physics, right? So, you know, I, I look at having a similar impact on our kids. And so, you know, we've had little engineering kinds of or physicsy kind of little projects at home that I've done with my sons. Um, one is nine, and the other one is five. He'll be six later on this year. And so we've done one, and we've made little, we've tweeted out, I've actually posted this on Twitter, where they've taken, like, eggs, and if you dip and leave an egg, and I think it's vinegar overnight, it basically cross-links, you know, that albumin that's just underneath the shell. So you can actually take the shell off, and the egg is bouncing now, because you've cross-linked the white, the albumin, is the protein that's in the egg white. And so you can actually take an egg and bounce it. You can't You can't throw it on the ground. It'll just bust because it's still got the egg yolk on the inside. But our kids actually took this and they're just mystified, right? That you can take this egg that normally you crack it and it just spills out. It's just liquid. But now you can take this egg and just leave it in vinegar overnight. And all of a sudden you can like literally bounce it to each other lightly. You can bounce it to each other on the table. So we've had videos of that. And then we bought our son um, a programming robot. Where it's very, very sort of basic, straightforward programming where you can you can just pro, pro, you can program the caterpillar. You can program the caterpillar. And he had a nickname, Pill. Like my oldest comes up with these really great nicknames for the toys that he has. So he took caterpillar and shortened it to Pill. that we just called it a Pill. So you can program these these caterpillars to navigate. So you can give it these instructions to move forward and turn right and turn left and then turn left. You can actually have it go in a circle. And so he was learning how to control the movement for this caterpillar just by telling it and prescribing what it was going to do. And so, and he was really excited about it. And he had a lot of fun with friends that would come by. And so he would show what he was able to accomplish and instructing or prescribing what the motion was going to be for the caterpillar. But it's all engineering, it's engineering at a young kid's level. So that they can have an understanding of what they're doing and just the idea of what programming now. we can tell him what programming is. When you program, you actually are giving instruction for a device um, or um, a computer. You're giving instructions, a set of instructions that are then carried out. Um, so he's you know, he actually won or was recognized uh, just as fast. he's just been his third grade, and he was recognized as you know, uh, always curious, always asking questions. And so he was given this like science award and science recognition. And I think, well, I think my my wife and I have some hand in the fact that he likes to ask questions, He's very curious. And he has a curious mind about science. Um, So I it's, you know, it's, I don't
0: know, it's, it's rewarding. That's, it's actually so funny that you mentioned this vinegar egg experiment, because like, me just being the degenerate that i am i'm on youtube a lot of the time and i found this on you i found this experiment on youtube the other day and i was like oh that's really cool so yeah i guess me and your sons are like both astonished by that uh and then i guess i got to come to your son next time i get a pet or something because pill the caterpillar is just like such a good name so like that's like terrific um, he is amazing when it comes to the com- comes up with nicknaming things yes um so one thing I wanted to also ask is just, you know, get to know you a little bit better. So what do you like to do in your free time? I mean, if you ever have any, like, you know, I, I think I've gathered some things from your Twitter account, you know, like cocktails, craft beers, like, you know, I know you I know you just went to the Kendrick Lamar concert, so you must like music. So yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about like your hobbies?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm big in the music. Um, that's also something I would say that came from my parents, but also growing up in Detroit. I grew up as Motown had, was kind of, Winding down its presence in Detroit, Motown ultimately moved or relocated to Los Angeles. So I think most of the music in the 70s and 80s that came out of Motown was made on the West Coast. But when it first started, right, Motown was founded in Detroit. And so the music scene in Detroit was incredible. Um, and so my dad, my parents were really into music. And so my dad used to play Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Prince. He's played Prince all the time, Um, and so I grew up just surrounded by just sonically, just music. Um, So I I really enjoy music, whether it's hip hop. Um, I listen to Jack White, so I listen to some alternative music. Uh, I'm really into Tank and the Bangas right now, which is out of uh, of Louisiana. Um, Is really something I'm really into. So there's some pop music that I'm also really into. Beyonce just dropped her album, Renaissance. So I just started listening to that. So it it goes beyond just hip hop um, in terms of just phonically, if it sounds good. Silk Sonic, oh my God. They have a residency in Las Vegas and my wife and I have talked about, man, would it be awesome to go see Bruno Mars, Anderson Pop and Silk Sonic perform, right? In live and in person. The Kendrick Lamar concert was incredible. I mean, that guy has so much energy. Lyrically, he is one of the best to ever grab a microphone. And not only that, but conceptually, like his music is so powerful, right? His lyrics and their substance is there. So I just love diving into, you know, what he's trying to communicate. The Beatles, believe it or not, I'm a big Beatles head, especially their, like, last four or five, starting with, like Rubber Soul and um, um, Oh my God. I'm, I'm I'm blanking on some of these albums, Let It Be, uh, The White, the The White album. Um, I'm really big into the Beatles because lyrically, we really dive into the lyrics. I mean, they were phenomenal with some of the messaging and some of the narratives and the stories that they were telling. Um, Peppers um is, is the album that I was blanking on for a minute. So I'm really big into music. I'm really big in the sports, really, really big in um, the sports. The professional teams in Detroit, when I was a kid, were winning titles other than the Lions, but the Red Wings were competitive. They were um, usually in the playoffs. The Detroit Tigers won the World Series when I was um, in middle school, the Pistons won uh, the NBA Finals, the World Championship when I was in high school. The Michigan Wolverines uh, basketball team won the title in 1989. It's the last one that they won. I was in high school, so I was constantly just watching, like, really top-level, top-flight competitive sports. And I I love being a a competitor, so I enjoy um, watching and playing sports. I'm getting older, so i got to be more mindful of, like, the sports that I pick up nowadays. So I'm really big into golf nowadays, and I think a lot of that also comes from Tiger Woods who will go down as, you know, one of the best ever pickup set of golf clubs Um, and just his discipline as well to be really, really good and and, and really successful in a sport. You got to pay attention to detail. You got to like the game within the game. You have to really, and you also have to be mentally, you have to be really, really strong. And Tiger is probably mentally one of the strongest competitors along with Michael Jordan that I've ever seen. Um, those two and um, there's a couple others. Don Staley, mentally, who's now the coach of the South Carolina basketball team, the Gamecocks. Mentally, Don Staley was just a beast, right? And there's a few others. Uh, uh, Cheryl Swoops was also mentally was just a beast. She was just really, you know, really, really mentally, um, uh, mentally, she was just always prepared um, to to be successful. So really into those things. And then you mentioned um, cocktails. My wife actually just bought me a book on Texas cocktails. Um, She literally just gave it to me yesterday. I haven't cracked it open just yet so I can begin to experiment, but I love making cocktails um, and and a variety of base spirits, whether it's gin or rye whiskey or bourbon. Um, I, I really enjoy enjoy just the flavor and just the composition of how to put the flavors together so it tastes good. Um, and historic cocktails as well. I'm really look. I'm, I'm really also a history buff. And then uh, lastly, I'll mention I used to make uh, I used to brew beer, and this was something that I used to actually talk about because I taught fluid mechanics um, when I was at Boston University. I used to talk about the process of making beer, and the fluid mechanics of making beer, and the chemistry of making beer. Um and I made beer up until our oldest was born. I probably made it maybe up until he was about two years old. Because if you make it um all grain, it's it's the process takes a long time. And you also have to work with propane uh tanks and you know these big these big flame generators. Um and we just I was just always fearful that our son, who's just too young, he wouldn't know any better, would just walk around and start touching things he's not supposed to touch he got five gallons of water, it's just basically boiling. He would just walk over and just touch the side of the pot just because he's curious. So I had to basically stop making beer for a while and I'm hoping to get back to it. But scientifically making beer is really fascinating. And I'm I'm fascinated by the Belgians because the, the flavors that the Belgians are able to get into their beers without a lot of additives, it's just based on nature. And chemistry is mind boggling. If you taste a really good Belgian beer, you'll get clove, you'll get banana, you'll get some fruit flavors like apple. You'll get some other fruity notes. And it's not like they're adding any of those things to the beer. You'll get clove, you'll get cinnamon. They're not adding cinnamon to the beer. It's all coming out of the bacteria. It's all coming out of the yeast. It's all coming up out of the proper selection in the yeast and the temperatures that they're allowing the yeast to actually grow. They're basically intentionally infecting sugar water. <laughs> You're loading up sugar water with bacteria on purpose. And that's how you get beer. That's also how you get wine and some other things. But the flavors that they get out of it is just, and so trying to recreate that, it's like a science experiment. It's a process. so. Yeah, those are some of the some of the hobbies that I have. I'm actually looking forward to the World Cup is um because of the pandemic, the World Cup is going to take place this fall, which is late. It's normally in the summer. And so I'm looking forward to actually hosting maybe even a World Cup viewing party like at the house or going out to a sports bar or something and just, you know, congregating with people who are, you know, scientists, but also like to watch sports and sit back and talk with each other. So That's something that um, I'm looking to hopefully do in the very,
0: very near future. Dang. Well, I got to say, you got to be careful because you're way too cool. I feel like everybody's going to want to be hanging out with you after this. They're going to (laughs) want to, you know, hang out, talk about music. You know, they probably want to try a porter cocktail here and there. Yeah. And like, I agree, like craft beer, I I sort of have this dream of like, oh, maybe if this whole – biomedical engineering thing doesn't work out and I get the PhD I don't want to do anymore I'll just become a micro you know start a micro brewery and brew beer because I I also have always been fascinated by it it's like so cool because you walk into a brewery and you have these huge reactors and all this and like I came from a background in chemistry so it's like oh my gosh I want to touch those reactors I want to do you know I really love that so who knows maybe the future but yeah that's a lot of cool things man you do a lot of cool stuff. Um, I guess my last question, just to round things off, would be, um, is there anything you would like to say to the listeners of Goggles Off? You know, just give this to you as, like, sort of your platform to say whatever you want to say. Wow, that wasn't on the
1: list. (laughs) Actually, it was. The last question that's on here. Um, So anything that I would like to say. I mean, I, I think biomedical. So I am really encouraged about the future of biomedical engineering and the future of potentially healthcare. Um, and, and, and especially if we can make it much more accessible uh, for people in general. I think there's you know, a lot of fascinating scientists and scholars that are out there um, that are working tremendously hard. And so I'm just looking, uh, the, the future is bright. You know. People like yourself and some of the students that I have in my lab, and, and, and some of the other students in the program, I'm really looking forward to, you know, future successes. The other thing I'll, I'll mention is, you know, it's, you know, we 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 need to do better as a society with treating each other. And I see it because, and maybe other disciplines and people in general can also maybe take a note out of biomedical engineering. Um, you know, we, we, we need to do better with bringing people of color and, you know, and, and create, improving the racial diversity within biomedical engineering. But because biomedical engineering at its very nature is interdisciplinary, is multidisciplinary, it requires people from so many different academic backgrounds and so many you know, broad um, base of experiences to work together it's sort of the rainbow coalition of science. And so it could serve as an example of what's possible that people can come together from different backgrounds and find common language and find something that they can be anchored by, that there's a common goal and a common vision and have a level of success. And my hope will be that that will serve as an example for people in society not just within the sciences, but within society in general. You know, Treat each other, be you know, very respectful with each other, respect each other's backgrounds, and respect each other's discipline, and what they add to the conversation, what they add to the experience. To me, biomedical engineering could be a beacon. It could serve as an example for beyond just the sciences of how we should actually be treating each other in society in general.